Welcome to Living a Better Life podcast with your host, Madeline Golick. This is a weekly podcast exploring a variety of topics on how you can live a better life, not just physically, but in all aspects of what it means to be human living in a modern world. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not replace professional or medical advice. This podcast is sponsored by Ecophysiotherapy, where their mission is to educate, empower, and rehabilitate you back to health. Without further ado, please enjoy the show. Just a quick thing before we begin today's podcast. Are unpleasant symptoms of digestion getting you down? Bloating, abdominal pain, constipation, indigestion, IBS, bowel dysfunction, SIBO, colitis? Well, We are now accepting new applications for our group physiotherapy program. To learn more, go to ecophysio.com forward slash group and submit an application and we will get in contact with you once we receive it to see if it's a good fit for our program. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. Today on the episode, we're going to be talking about the physiological benefits of purpose. So I'm super excited to have Dr. Dr. Megan Walker with us here today. So welcome to the show. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. This is so exciting because it seems like, okay, living a better life. Like really, are we going to talk about purpose? Like, you know, are you going to talk about something medical? And in fact, I believe that there is a link. Oh, there's a link. There's a link. Yeah, I'm super excited, but I figure the first place we should maybe start is, can you tell our listeners a little bit about you and uh, then we'll dive right in. Yeah. You you know, I'm, um, I'm a retired naturopathic doctor. I am, I I say sometimes I'm a recovering naturopathic doctor. So I, you know, I started my clinical career, uh, over 12 years ago, um, working in the downtown core of Toronto. And so I was working with, you know, busy executives who were like, you know, I've I've got a problem with my health, nothing's working and and I've got to get back to work. Um, so I, there was a certain psychology that was coming into my office. I was deeply fascinated, um, by it, but I, I also, it really opened my eyes as I, as I got deeper into my career, just how ill-equipped the traditional system was at managing, uh, preventative and lifestyle diseases. And, and I knew all of those things intellectually, but when I, when I got out there in the quote unquote real world, I was really, uh, blown away by, by the lack of, of resource and, and education around that piece in the traditional system. And I say that in full transparency, that my husband's a traditionally trained physician. So, you know, I would go home and test these hypotheses. And so, um, one of the things that just became so compelling to me early in my career was we got to, we've got to get these systems of medicine in more people's hands. We need to talk prevention. We need to, we need to talk health literacy with the average person. They just don't know or understand. Um, and so I, I became really fascinated with that and really clear that my mission was how do we put this, these systems of medicine into more people's hands. And I realized really quickly that the reality of that was I, I couldn't do it as a clinician who saw people one-to-one. I just would run out of time. Um, and I had these incredible colleagues who also, uh, had a mission and a message and were able to reach different people in different ways. And so, you know, my, I started to split my clinical career with how do I work with my fellow colleagues to help them amplify their message and their businesses. And, and so I've, I've worked in, in several, uh, tech startups, uh, along the way I've been working with practitioners, uh, 
as a, as a strategist and consultant in their own practices to help them maximize uh, their messaging for the last few years. And then finally retired from practice so that I could uh, dedicate myself to that uh, myself to that full time. So, you know, I'm, I'm a clinician by background, definitely been an entrepreneur my entire life. The, the blending of those, I call myself an anthropologist because um, I'm really interested in understanding more about the intersection between mindset and health and entrepreneurship and how those three concepts can come together to create all sorts of new solutions for the world we live in today. So amazing and interesting to see all those pieces come together because I had an immediate kind of like thing pop into my head centered around, yeah, purpose. Like purpose is like really important. I remember hearing something or reading something about uh, life expectancy after retirement. Like you work your whole life, you retire to enjoy. And if you sort of don't have a purpose, I, I can't remember the study, but it was like two years or so was like when a lot of people dropped off. Right. Yeah. So I was like, okay, can purpose really, you know, can purpose drive our physiology in a particular way? So maybe we can start with building some context around purpose and maybe how you're framing it um, or thinking about it. Like, what does purpose actually mean? Yeah. And, you know, we, we can define purpose in a variety of, of different ways. And, and I, I think that the language in some ways is less important than the physiological outcome of engaging in it. And so, you know, for, for me, uh, this notion of purpose is really being in alignment with what you are good at, what evokes a sense of passion and commitment, and what has the capacity to contribute outside yourself. So we can get super passionate about scrapbooking, um, unless your scrapbooking hobby is also about building community, engaging with, with others. It's, it's a passion, not a purpose. And we tend to confuse those two ideas. And it's actually really important. And I don't mean, I'm certainly not trying to offend the scrapbookers, but what I'm saying is this is a yes and um, opportunity for, for people. So passions are things we get really excited about and we delve into their self-fulfilling, which are really also very important in terms of stress management and other things. They're just not purpose. So purpose is where we take take the elements that we get passionate about. And now we're also having a capacity to externally contribute. And that differentiation seems to be really important. And where I started to observe this was in my own clinical practice. I got really fascinated with what is the difference in the psychology or life or situation of an individual who came into my office, seemingly similar on paper. So similar status of disease, similar status in terms of, of, um, you know, nutrient status and, and, and biomarkers that we would look at on blood work, except person a got better and got back to what it was they were going to do in the world and had minimal visits and minimal follow-ups and was totally engaged in person B you know, they were back in the office and we couldn't gain traction and, and they were, they were jumping around and like, what, you know, what was the, what was the difference? And it's complex and medicine is nuanced. But one of the things I started to really start to see was that individuals who could identify as having a sense of purpose in life, those people got better faster. They required less intervention they required and came back into my office less frequently. They had less anxiety. They had less depression. I was really 
interested in how purpose was fueling and mitigating a disease. And it was just a hypothesis to me at this point, maybe there were other life circumstances that were driving that. Maybe there was a different level and access to privilege. Like the notion of scientific inquiry meant I had to, I had to really like step back and, and, and address those confounding factors. And so then I was like, let's look at the literature. Let's see, has anyone else observed this? And lo and behold, this notion of purpose in the medical literature was actually quite pervasive and well-written on. And so what they were finding is that again, when individuals were identifying as having a sense of purpose in life, we saw this across multiple types of physiological verticals. We saw people who had previously had a stroke um, or a massive cardiovascular event. Those who identified as having a sense of purpose in their life had a 72% reduction in recurring events. There isn't a drug or intervention on the planet that comes close to matching that. Individuals with neurological conditions, same thing. They would get better when they could couple this notion of purpose with uh, with treatment. We saw less incidence of cancer, less incidence of anxiety, less incidence of depression. So the, then the question is, well, what's happening physiologically? Like, is this just they're super happy people and they've got purpose, and so you know, it kind of masks all these other things? Well, no. What we then looked at. And by we, I mean, other people in the scientific community, and I'm just this lowly clinician, is that actually people who identify as having a sense of purpose and are engaged in purposeful activities in their life. And it's not for you and I to define what should be purposeful for people. We actually saw a blunted cortisol curve. And so cortisol being this hormone that gets released by the adrenal glands in response to chronic stress, we saw significant decreases in cortisol when people were identifying with a sense of purpose. So now we started to have a biological mechanism behind how this, uh, how this worked. And this, this was just so fascinating to me as a clinician and really started to form so much of my own inquiry and investigation and conversations with my own patients. It's not a question that you typically find in our assessment forms. No, no. Cause no one knows what to do with it either. Like I would have patients and I would say, okay, so talk to me about like your, your sense of purpose in life. Like, what do you do? And they'd look at me. Well, some would be really excited about the question and someone looked at me and they'd say, Megan, I, I came in because I have eczema. Like what a ridiculous question. Right. So we're, I mean, we really, we don't have this conversation. And I, and I think we don't have this conversation in our family. We don't have this conversation in school. And in fact, you know, this notion of purpose. And I, and I, this is why I'm so interested in the science behind it. I mean, it, it could be considered this fairly flighty concept as it were to try to talk about purpose and, and medicine, like any physician who takes themselves seriously is not going to ask their patients about their sense of purpose. I mean, come on. Um, but we're starting to see science about that. We're, we're, we're starting to understand that someone's life, like really understand and really see data around the fact that someone's life is three-dimensional. And so you can have absolutely no physiological biochemical reasoning for why something's manifesting. And then we see this massive psychological picture and historically we've been like, well, they're kind of correlated, but they couldn't possibly be causing the problem. And now we're actually starting to understand how the intersection of, of mindset and psychology really does influence what happens to us physiologically on a daily basis or epigenetically, how it influences our actual DNA. Like that to me is the next piece of, of interest and intrigue around this notion of purpose. How does this blunting of cortisol and how does the physiological cascade of someone who identifies with purpose influence what happens to them epigenetically or genetically? What kind of genes get turned on 
or off when they're able to, um, to engage in purpose. I think this is a fundamental, uh, question when we're starting to look at, uh, look at health. Yeah. Especially from a holistic, like the word, you know, that comes to my mind is like, yeah, biopsychosocial, environmental, uh, all of those, uh, things, you know, that are coming, I mean, that are in the physiotherapy realm, because that's my realm. And I, and that's what I sort of see, but as you're speaking, I'm like, yes, like there's so many aspects, like health is not just like this. Oh, I came in with just this chronic pain issue. It's like, well, what's layered into how did, how did we, how did, how did we get here? What are all Mm -hmm. the aspects and, and, and things. And, and it can be challenging for practitioners, certainly to be asking those questions, uh, cause we haven't been really traditionally trained in that. Like everything right. that I've learned about the biopsychosocial model, I learned outside of university. Right. And it's deeply rooted in physiotherapy, you know, to sort of practice in a certain way. And I understand we need to have clinical skills of assessment and treatment, but then we're not, well, maybe now more so than obviously before we're starting to see some of those other markers to start asking mm-hmm. questions, but we as clinicians also feel quite uncomfortable because we're not sure once we've asked the question, what, what do you do? Is, what do we do with it? Yeah. You do you have purpose. No. Oh, mm. Mm. oh shoot. Right. Like it, it, you have to, you have to know what to do with that, uh, with that next step. But, you know, chronic pain is a really interesting one. And I'm certainly not going to, uh, label all elements of chronic pain as, oh, you don't have purpose. Otherwise your pain would go away. It is not that simple. Like medicine is never that simple. It's rare that a single intervention is going to change the trajectory of any course of, of disease. It is part of a spectrum of questioning that I think is really important to look at. And sometimes purpose and the fulfillment of purpose is actually what prevents us from healing. So I had a patient who came to see me and she had chronic Lyme and chronic stealth infections. And this was, this is a, a realm that I worked with in my practice. Um, and she also had uh, chronic fatigue and, and fibromyalgia. So we started to talk about all these different pieces and, you know, she'd had really comprehensive testing. She'd worked with really amazing practitioners. When I looked at her previous protocols, I was like, this doesn't make sense. So I was like, talk to me about what else is happening in your life. As I'm kind of stalling to try to think about where else we can go in this case. Um, and she, you know, she was so excited. She's like, I am, I am the president of, of this fibromyalgia association. And I'm like on the board of this chronic fatigue thing. And I was like, oh, hold up your, your disease is now fulfilling your life purpose. And I said to her, I said, listen, I, I want you to take this from a place of, um, un like, you know, unbiased inquiry, but you have all these incredible physiological, psychological rewards for the contribution that you are doing because you have these spectrum of conditions. Is it possible that we can hit pause on that? for a little bit. Is it possible? Like what would happen? Do you think if you didn't have any of these spectrum of conditions, could you contribute to these organizations this way? She's like, well, you know, I might not have the same credibility and the same. And I was like, oh my gosh, she's, she's going through the same thing that I'm going through. Of If I dropped my license and I, and I started to just work in the consulting realm, would I still have credibility with my audience? And so it was really interesting. She, she fortunately, and I always gauge this with my patients. She was like, let me like, let me work through this. Um, and she stepped down from these, uh, when we would work together for a period of time at this point, she stepped down and took a sabbatical for nine months. And guess what? All of her symptoms started to disappear. 
And we worked and she worked with her therapist to start to really understand how can I take those skills that made me so effective in those organizations, still contribute there and contribute other places. So purpose, this is the other thing about purpose is purpose does not have to, purpose isn't one vocation. We see this with athletes, a lot Olympic athletes, high incidence of depression in Olympic athletes, high incidence of depression in individuals who had, um, you know, uh, celebrities or news media or these types of people when they're no longer in those positions, because there's a high that comes from that, that notoriety and that recognition and, and, and that, and that lifestyle. And so one of the things that's really fascinating is how do we take, how do we, it's not about the job. It's not about the athletic achievement. It's about the skill set that you brought to that vocation. And the cool thing about that skill set that you brought to that vocation is it can be extracted and put somewhere else. And that's what happened in the case of this patient that I was working with. She recognized the skill set as opposed to the vocation. And so this is the neat thing about purpose is when we start to understand that purpose is this confluence of what you're good at, what you really love to do, what has a capacity to drive contribution, you realize you can take that skill set and put it somewhere else. And that's that's the secret to making purpose work for you on a, on a physiological or psychological or life basis is that it is a transferable set of skills as you grow and move through life. Yeah. I'm, 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 I'm nodding my head that no, well, if, if you're watching the video, you're seeing me nod my head and I'm just, because I wanted to ask, you know, we talk about, or we think about a job right? I'm a physiotherapist. So my purpose is to help people feel better. But then what happens to practitioners or individuals when they still want to help people, but not in that particular job setting, right? Or people start to feel like, well, am I losing my purpose? Or what do I, how do I navigate this, this piece? And as you were talking about athletes as well, I was thinking in my mind, like if an athlete is dedicated to a sp- to a specific purpose, and then they have, let's say a life altering injury that prevents them from doing that. And you can see how some people who I guess can access those skill sets and transfer them, yeah. um, have a different experience than those right. who are perhaps latched specifically to that. My purpose was to be, you know, an base famous baseball player. And now I can't do that. So purpose can. Yeah. So I'm just seeing like, it could be a double-edged sword. If you think about it from the end piece versus Mm -hmm. process. Right. And you know, where I used to see this a lot too, was I would work with, um, with women highly accomplished in their, in their career, engaged in their community, doing their thing. And they would come in and they're, they're, they, let's say they were 50 years old. They were menopausal, perimenopausal, and they, like, they were really sincerely depressed and all of the clinical checklists I need to go with. Are you engaged in community? Are you engaged in your career? Are you financially stable? Like all the things that, that promote risk factors wouldn't be there. And, and again, as I got deeper into this, this research around purpose and a clinical context, one of the things I, I was realizing is that there was an entire cohort of women. And I saw way more in women than men. That's why I'm speaking to that, where their purpose was their children. And when their children left and when their children got married and when their children were starting to build their own life, it left this gaping identity wound for these women. And so they were, you know, I do golf three times a week and I do have my friend group, but none of those things were eliciting that same sense of purpose. And so when I talk to women and I talk to moms, one of the first things that I I really address when we're having this conversation 
is, is getting, giving people permission to explore their purpose beyond their role or hat of motherhood and motherhood again, to me is a vertical in which your purpose can shine, but it isn't necessarily your purpose in its entirety and making that differentiation for yourself is really important. I also think it's really important as a parent to be able to showcase to your kids that like, listen, I have this set of skills and I'm, you are so lucky to, that we've got this thing going on. Cause I'm going to impart this set of skills, but here's how I also use it in the world that my sense of purpose is not just the fulfillment of another human being. It is a spectrum of people that I can contribute to you. I think these are really important opportunities for kids to, uh, to see that. Um, and so once I started to talk to women about this idea, there were these huge aha moments where they're like, oh gosh, you are so right. Like I'm going through these motions. I'm not getting the same physiological reward from any of them because they're not fulfilling that purpose piece. And so I make that differentiation for women because listen, like part of my career is like, how do we look preventatively? How do we look into the, how do we look into the future? I, I, I really want you to start to make that, uh, that distinction, uh, cause it will creep up on you otherwise. Yeah. So <clears throat> one of the things that are kind of coming, that's coming to my mind is like, okay, so you're in a career, you're good, you know, air quotes, good at it, expert at it. Um, you know, everything's kind of going well, but you're having this sense of like an existential crisis, right? Um, what, you know, I, I'm thinking like how, how do you find purpose or how do you, like, how do you do that when you've been doing one thing for so long mm -hmm. and you're like, now that my kids are grown up, it's like, now what? Right. Uh, Cause that's kind of an uncomfortable place to be where you're like, I want to have purpose, but I don't know what my purpose is. And how do I begin to even navigate that right you know, in your experience, how did, how have you sort of worked with that in between realm? Right. It's a million dollar question, right? Cause it's like, okay, thanks for diagnosing me, but what do I do about it? You're like, well, you know, best of luck to you. Um, and so the, the first thing that's really important when we're looking at this, this, this process of, of, of identifying and moving into and exploring and, and trialing, um, hanging out with our sense of purpose is there certain prerequisites that need to be in place. The first one is you need to feel worthy of exploring your purpose. And for some people, we stop right there. They're like, well, you know, I've, I've dedicated my life to everyone else in my family flourishing that that's not my job, or that might be the programming that you got from your parents. So the very first thing, remember I stood in front of this room and there was like 250 women we're talking about purpose. And I could see there was just like this hesitancy. And so I like, you know, I stopped and I stepped to the front of the stage and I looked at everybody and I said, I want you all to know if you were waiting for this, you all have permission to pursue your purpose. I don't care what your parents told you. I don't care. And there was just like, the whole room was just burst into tears. Like literally everyone was crying. And then, so I stopped and I was like, what, like, what was happening for you? And she was like, you know, I was, I was told by my mother, like when you have, when you've got kids in a family, you dedicate your life to your family. You don't matter anymore. And I was told, and there was this message popping up all over the place. And I was like, oh gosh, no one's going to explore purpose if they were never made to feel worthy enough to explore that. And so you, that has to be a prerequisite on the floor. And that that's, that's internal work. Sometimes that's work with your therapist. Sometimes that's work with your coach, whoever you're working with that, 
that permission and that state of worthiness must be present to move forward in this exercise. And if it's not, that is step one. Step two, you need to make space to be able to explore your purpose. If you have filled your entire day with activities and driving around and laundry and all these things that are, listen, I love folding laundry, but it is not my purpose. Let's be quite clear on this. If we don't make space to start to explore our purpose, then we will not have an opportunity to do that. And this is not coming from a place of privilege. What you do is you ask your partner or your kids to fold the darn laundry for you because you are going to meditate or you are going to reflect or you're going to go sit in the bathtub with a cup of tea because you really want to dig into this concept. So you you have to make it happen. You have to make space happen. You might have to say no to other things. So you just, you need to create some space to walk in the forest or to journal or whatever the tools are that are helpful for you. So those are two prerequisites that need to be in place. Then it gets really practical. So then it's a matter of, okay, let's actually start to identify those things that you are good at. Maybe you're a good writer. Maybe you're a good speaker. Maybe you're, you're that natural that natural leader in your community. Maybe you're just really empathetic and good at understanding other people's skills. Maybe you have a tangible skill you went to school for. You're a naturally inclined athlete. I don't know what it is. You're going to make that list. This is why the worthiness has to be there because otherwise you'll be like, I'm not good at anything, which isn't true. There's just nobody, nobody in the world who's like, I'm not good at anything, right? It's, so the worthiness isn't there. We can't move into the real exercise, which is step one. If you are not sure, if you are having trouble with this, if you're like, I'm too modest to list any of the things that I'm good at, we're back to the worthiness piece. And two, ask your friends and family. And what you'll see is that there's a consistent list of things that they, they will start to pull out for you. Now, the things you are good at are not your purpose. They're just assets that you bring to the table. And this is really important. Andre Agassi talked about this in, in his autobiography. He's really good at tennis. He's like, kind of hated tennis, right? It wasn't his purpose. It was just something he was good at. So we need to make that differentiation. So take that list and now highlight in pink the things that you actually love. Because this is usually where it starts, right? We have these inherent, I call them impact skills. And so we've got these impact skills. These are things usually we're really good at. And also they light us up. You might be a great public speaker, but you'd rather like hide in a hole than do it. So let's not put that on the list. So moving forward, we move those items forward that we actually really love. And then we look at those skills and we start to go, how can I leverage these in arenas of contribution? That might be volunteering on your kid's parent council. That might be starting a business. That might be saying to an employer, you know what? I'd love to be on the committee that explores X, Y, and Z. How can we take those skills and start to deploy them in systems and models that already exist in your life? And then you hang out with that for a period of time and you check in. How do I feel about this? Do I get excited every time I go to this, this meeting? Do I get this dopamine rush when I am asked to do certain things? When I spoke up the other day at that parent council meeting and everyone's like, that was such a great point. How did I feel about that? When I stepped into that leadership role, we had to check in with how we feel about some of these, these experiences. And what starts to happen is if you closed your eyes at this point, you would be able to feel where those next opportunities lie, where you are leveraging and honing and strengthening those skills that you love to do and that have a capacity for contribution. So there's, there's a few things that need to be in place. And then there's a lot of self-reflection that actually starts to happen, but we have all of the tools inherently in us to start to acknowledge whether we're in alignment with purpose or not. We just actually have to tap in. Yeah. I, uh, 
and just finished reading a book on um, the zone of genius. And the, he was talking about how much time do you dedicate toward your creativity? And he was talking about, you know, creating that space where you can let things roam around. And he also said the answers don't come from the known. It comes from the unknown when you actually disconnect and sort of are sort of in that floaty place where you're not really thinking about certain things. You know, maybe you're in walking in the forest and you're like, do, 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 looking at flowers. And all of a sudden this like download comes or this idea pops into mind. Right. So you could be doing all the steps you described and then, you know, creating space where you just kind of also let yourself sit with that for a while and sit in the discomfort of like, I don't really know what the answer is here, but I'm willing to have my self explore the possibilities and something will come through at some point. Right. Right. And the, and the more space you have to, you have to make space for new things to come into your into your life. So, you know, again, if you're like jam packed and this becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy for so many people, cause they're like, well, you know, I was interested in the purpose thing. It just never came to me. Meanwhile, like from 5.00 AM until midnight, they're like packed. The schedule is completely, is completely full doing all the busyness of, of life. And that's okay. Sometimes there's phases where that has to happen, but you also have to recognize new things will not come in. Uh, when that is taking place, you need to, to create that blank space in your life. Um, which, you know, comes from planning, which comes from the evolution of one's career. There's, there's a phase of your career where, gosh, like you're, you're busy. There's a hustle to it. I don't want to pretend that those things aren't, uh, aren't there, but you have to consciously implement the boundaries that enable you to start to look at this. If it's something that you want to have in your life. Yeah. I I'll oftentimes like mention to my clients. So like, when do you think you can fit this in? Cause you, you know, I want you to put it like in your calendar, that like, mm-hmm. this is the time where you're going to dedicate so that you can mobilize all the people that can support you in that. So if you have children, like getting your husband to, you know, watch the kids during this 30 minute time while right. you are doing your exercise program, you know, if we just wait for time to open up, yeah. I often find that that time never comes. It will never come. It's like a bucket of water, right? So you can take the bucket out or the stone out of the bucket of water and you like immediately you would never know there had been a stone in there. It's not like you're like, oh, look at the blank space that was created because we took the stone out of the bucket. It doesn't, it doesn't work that way. You have to put those, uh, you have to put those boundaries uh, in place. And I, and you know, I appreciate that not everyone's life is conducive to that. Not all relationships are in a place where you can say, honey, watch the kids. I'm going to meditate on this. I like really, it's important to me to exist in this, uh, state of purpose, but we need to start to normalize these conversations. So just like, just like I, you know, I want women to have access to this. I want men to have access to these pieces too. Like this has to be a shared value that in adjacent to having our families and in adjacent to having our respective careers, we also get to autonomously explore our capacity for purpose and contribution in this world. Absolutely. So you kind of gave us a little bit of a taste test of kind of how you work with people to help them find purpose, but I figure I'll pose the question in case there is more that you'd like to share on, you know, how do you specifically, because there's so many of us that, begin to get a sense of not feeling in alignment 
and not knowing what, like what then, or I found my purpose. What now? So I'm curious about how you work with people in helping them navigate this very important question. Right. You know, that's really evolved for me. So when I was, uh, when I was a clinician and I'm not, I'm not a clinician, I've sold my practice. I've stepped out of that, uh, that phase of my life. Um, this was something that I would work with people on -on one-on-one and, uh, the evolution of that is now working with, um, predominantly, uh, practitioners and entrepreneurs in the health space, looking at how we take the fourth step of purpose. And the fourth step of purpose is where we, we go from that contribution realm to, can I take this contribution? And is there a capacity to start to monetize this? Can I get paid for putting my purpose into the, into the world? This is a jump for a lot of people. A lot of people are like, Whoa, I've got this skill. I just need to give it to everyone. But to me, I'm super interested in like, how do I have my cake and eat it too? Can I contribute in a meaningful, beautiful, impactful way in this world? And also monetize from it that to me, that is the ultimate privilege in life to earn your living while simultaneously on a daily basis, getting to, to live in a state of purpose. Like you have to do your worthiness work to take that next step and that, uh, on that jump. Um, but that's really where I work with people when they go, okay, I have, I have a sense of what this purpose is. How am I actually going to create an entity that enables me to uh, monetize and create and build financial sustainability to this purpose and this capacity for, for contribution. Um, that's, that's, that's what I do that, that to me, that to me is my, my purpose. And one of the things that, that I uh, get to do on a daily basis, in addition to uh, building businesses, which is, you know, what I do with the other half of my life is I have a whole business dedicating to helping people make that, uh, that jump. And it is deeply fulfilling. And also extremely important, especially in the health and wellness um, space, because I think, you know, I can only speak for my, you know, for myself, you know, being, uh, you know, physio and other healthcare practices, there's a sort of a traditional way that we practice, which is also just one-on-one, but what happens when our schedules are full and we begin to be tired because we've been doing it for five, six, 10, 15 years. Mm -hmm. And we're not finding that hit anymore, just because it's maybe not as new or it just, there could be a multitude of reasons why that doesn't serve our purpose. And so then as clinicians, we're kind of like, okay, I still really want to help people in this vocation per se, but I, what do I like one-on-one practice is what we do. Like, how do I, how do I grow from there and still provide the value? I don't know if you want to speak a little bit to that aspect. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm happy to, I think as clinicians, we were taught how to deliver one-on-one practice. And so we over-indexed the importance of spending one-on-one time with people as the only way to move someone's health forward. And what most pieces of health literature will speak to is that we can meaningfully, is that even a word? Meaningfully, meaningfully, we're going to use it anyway. We can meaningfully move someone's health forward 
outside the context of one-on-one practice. In fact, we have over-indexed the importance of one-on-one visits to the point that some people aren't ready for them. So as a naturopathic doctor, and I'll, I'll speak to that, but it is transferable to physiotherapy or, or frankly, any other realm where we're starting to talk about preventative health. People have hangups back to worthiness. People have hangups or core beliefs around this notion of investing in themselves. When I would talk to my patients and I'd say, and they would come in with like really severe, significant things. And I would say, what took you so long to come in? And they would say, and we jumped to this notion of, oh, they just, they, they didn't want to pay for it. They couldn't afford it. It is the, it's this logical jump when we all go there and we assume that's the, everyone's reason. That was rarely the reason that was maybe a fifth of the time, 20% of the time was that was what was cited. The, the truth was they were like, I did not want to sit across from you one-on-one in this entirely vulnerable situation and tell you that I drink vodka to put myself to sleep at night. I didn't want to tell you what my bowel movements look like. I didn't want to tell you I had an abortion at 16. I didn't want to tell you my deepest, darkest secrets. And I knew you were going to ask them and I was not ready. And so I sat and managed self-managed these symptoms for the last four years because I wasn't ready to talk about it with you. And I think it's really important as clinicians, we recognize that we have this huge bias around the importance and need for people to be with us uh, one-on-one. And for a lot of people, in fact, I would argue most people, it's an extremely advanced move for them to come in and declare that state of vulnerability. It's why they don't go to the emerge until there's like, you know, they're bleeding out and they're like, I think I should probably go in now. Worse with men than women. We know that from, from studies, it's too vulnerable for them. And what have we historically done in healthcare about that? Zippo. We've done nothing about it because we're like, nope, the only way I can safely get someone well is if I see them in one-on-one care. And most people are walking around entirely too insecure or feeling way too vulnerable to walk into an office and sit with you one-on-one to talk about that. So I, I think we need to have this reckoning and acknowledgement in healthcare that maybe there's an opportunity to innovate our offering for patients. And so that's one of the things I'm really interested in. I want to understand the stages that patients move through in wanting to move into one-on-one care. And so I talk about that a lot in our, in our programming at clinicians business labs. The second thing I want to help clinicians do is create opportunities for patients and people to hear your message of how to get well outside of a one-on-one context and create a structure to do that where we're not putting patients at risk. So how do we communicate to people so that they are able to start to learn and move their health forward? And it's not going to, you know, we're not going to miss something important. They're not in a severe state of distress and should be an emerge. And instead I'm, I'm handing them a dietary change. How do we do that safely? How do we do that in alignment with one's um, regulatory framework? These actually are not difficult things to do. The biggest challenge is that as a collective health regulated industry, we've always just been like one-on-one care is the only way to do it. It's how we're taught in school. It's how our community of fellow practitioners do it. And so to be the salmon swimming upstream, to do it a little bit differently, to be like, Hey, I kind of want to explore this other thing. Um, that takes a lot of courage. It takes a huge amount of courage to start to do that. The challenge with this one-on-one practice, notwithstanding the fact that patients sometimes don't want it. And we're missing out on this opportunity of helping so many more people is that you are giving up one of your most rapidly depleting resources, and that is your time. And every day you spend on this planet, you have less and less 
time. And so I think what happens for a lot of practitioners is as they move deeper into their career, they also have this realization in life. They're going, holy crap. Every second I spend with a patient is more expensive than the second I spent before because I have less of this time. And so then there's this sort of existential crisis of how do I start to leverage what I'm doing more? Gosh, I am super resentful of the fact that I could be hanging out with my kids and family and loved ones. And I'm sitting across from this person who doesn't want to change their lifestyle, doesn't want to do their exercises, and I have nothing else to offer them. So for so many reasons, the benefit of patients, the benefit of uh, practitioners, we need to diversify and innovate our offerings uh, with respect to care and the innovation of one's offerings with respect to care adds income diversification for these practitioners, which decreases their financial risk. And it is also respectful of their time and their patient's time. So, uh, you know, I, I'm not saying all of these pieces because I'm like, I, I want to be the opposite of convention. I'm saying all of these pieces because I think we have this once in a lifetime opportunity right now. While patients are exploring this idea and people are exploring this idea of virtual care or online care or looking to Google for answers, I think this is, these are all symptoms of a society that is looking for answers outside of the one-on-one context. And I am super excited to help explore that with practitioners. That was a really long answer. That's okay. Because I was thinking to myself, coming back to purpose is like when a practitioner finds a way to provide the same quality care in a different way that lights them up, that benefits, that energy transmits to the clients they're working with and also, you know, kind of builds a space around the clients to also like explore their purpose, right? Because they're picking up on your energy and you're talking about your purpose here working with them and your purpose here is to get, you know, them to not have IBS, you know, being so disruptive in their life. And then they're seeing that and the energy and they're seeing possibilities. And so then their health status is also changing because they're in a space where, you know, they are also picked up by our energy versus a practitioner um, that's, you know, close to burnout right? Because there's only you want to be treated by. Well, right. It's, it's that I remember sitting with my grandmother in an emerge and this physician came over and I looked at him and I just smiled. I'm like, are you okay? And he had to walk away. He was not okay. He was not okay. And he can, but you could tell he compassionately wanted to help her, but like he, he was not in a good, not in a good place. He wasn't making the best clinical decisions. He was frustrated by what he was seeing around him. And one, he just needed a little bit of compassion, but two, we do have a healthcare system on the brink of collapse. And we have asked so much of these frontline workers, and we are not open as a society in particular in Canada to looking at innovation and healthcare, because we're so threatened by what that might Uh, might mean. And we need this innovation and we need these open conversations and we need to throw around and banter ideas in the spirit of innovation so that we can preserve the system, but we can also preserve the people who are working in it. Absolutely. So, I mean, you've shared some really uh, great nuggets, both on just like population at general seeking purpose and 
practitioners finding their purpose and finding new, you know, speaking to this idea of innovation and different ways of doing it where you can stay in your passion or find a new passion or find a different way to present it. I'm curious, and I'm sure there are going to be practitioners that um, are like, yes, I need some of this in my life right now. I'm curious, you know, um, any particular resources that you want to point people to and, or where can people find you and follow you so that, you know, they're, they're in your energy. Oh, thanks. Um, if you, for clinicians, I would just really encourage you to come hang out with us at clinician business lab. So you can find me at cliniciansbusinesslabs.com. Um, and we have a free Facebook group. So you go to Facebook, look up clinician business labs. You can join us for free on this, on this mission with thousands of other practitioners from around the world. Um, and then my own sort of, uh, thought leadership and ex- exploration of some of these ideas, uh, I do on my own podcast, the anthropology podcast, which is about to get renamed, but I can't tell you what it is. And I'm so what? excited. Um, and, uh, and on Instagram, you can find me at, uh, Dr. Megan Walker and I'm pretty active on there. Amazing. And for anybody who's like, wait, what was, what did she say? She said a couple of things where, oh, don't worry. The links will be in the show notes. Yeah, they will. So they will make it easy for you to make sure that you do not miss an opportunity to uh, hang out with uh, Dr. Megan Walker. And I want to thank you so much for coming on and speaking to this uh, particular topic, because I think you know, if anything, what we've been going through the last two years has probably created an existential crisis, probably for everybody, <laughs> if we're really oh, honest. And I think that's okay. I think yeah. what an opportunity, once we get through the trauma, but what an opportunity to change the trajectory of how we are, are living these really precious lives uh, that we have. I think there's, there's a lot of opportunity for, for positivity on the other side of this and growth. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I I'm, I'm really excited and anchoring myself into that, uh, mindset and ideas. So thanks again for taking time out of your schedule. And of course we want to thank our listeners for joining us on a weekly basis. So please feel free to subscribe because we have cool episodes and cool people on. And number two, I think this is a really, really, really important podcast to like hit that share button, right? Or links, sharing the links to this podcast, because here's the thing, we do not know. People are not going to be like, I don't know if I have a purpose. And we're not having this conversation is what I mean to say. So let's start having this conversation by sharing this episode out. So on that note, I'm wishing everybody a wonderful day and we'll connect with you all next time. Thank you for listening to Living a Better Life podcast. Make sure to subscribe to our show to stay up to date with our latest and greatest episodes. We would also love to hear your comments, suggestions, and reviews. Thanks again. Until the next episode. Bye for now.